Take your copy of God's Word, turn to Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 1 through 9 as to maintain the context of the passage that is before us. The sermon will come from verses 4 through 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, reading through verse 9. Again, this is the Word of the living God. He has penned it for you. Let's give attention to it even this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This is the word of the living God. Let's pause and ask for his help, as we typically do at this point, as we consider this portion of his word together. In the preaching of it this morning, let's pray. Father, as we now turn our minds and our attentions, not to words merely printed on a page, but very much the mind of the living God who wrote them. May you direct our mind, our thoughts, our hearts, and may we hear from you as your word is proclaimed. Help us by your spirit, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Being thankful in difficult circumstances, I suspect for most, if not all of you, It's usually very difficult, very hard. I suspect it is especially difficult for elders and ministers of the gospel. To be that way when the church is in chaos, issues are pressing on every side, problems abound, and unity seems lacking. But yet here in this passage that's before us, that's precisely what the Apostle Paul does. He doesn't complain, he doesn't gripe, he doesn't cast aspersions on the people. Instead, he offers a heartfelt thanks to God for them and seeks to encourage them, despite the fact that their church is a miserable mess. Now, as I was working on this sermon, I came to the very clear realization that this is one of those sermons that would be best preached to a room full of preachers. In fact, I came to the even sooner realization that this sermon needed to be preached to my own heart, as all sermons do, but this one even more so. Why is that? Because it would be very easy, and in fact, it was easy, to apply these verses to my own ministry here at Providence, and to also do that by way of the ruling elders that are in this room. 
to ask and really answer the following question, brothers as elders and me as a minister to this congregation, to ask and answer the question, am I truly thankful for God's people at Providence, even though there are issues, there are problems, or there are circumstances that are hard to bear? Do I focus my attention? Do you, brothers, focus your attention on the God who saved each member of this church and respond with heartfelt thanks for each one? Now look, I've talked with enough of you. I've talked with myself. You've talked with me. And let's face it, the reality is it's so much easier, isn't it, to go the other way. To go to complaining and murmuring and griping about whatever it is is really one of those passages that speaks most directly into the lives of those that would lead Christ's church. Both as elders, ruling elders, as ministers. But before you check out as the members of the church now and realize that I'm only really preaching to four people in this room, but I'm not, there are matters here for you as well and things you need to hear. There are things that the elders need to hear. There are things you need to hear. First, the elders and ministers need to hear that a faithful minister will truly be thankful for the sheep entrusted to their care. Regardless of the circumstance. Second, they need to hear that they will seek to encourage them in their journey regardless of what is occurring. Members need to hear the heart of the apostle, the heart of their pastor, I guess, as the sermon goes forward, that we true do desire and love each of you and want to encourage you as you travel your road, the road that we travel together as a church. This is what Paul does. Maybe I'm alone in this room. Maybe I'm the only one who reads these verses and thinks to themselves, wow, I know what's going on in this church at Corinth. I know the issues, I know the circumstances, and yet he can still be thankful. It's humbling to say the least. What we have here really is Paul beginning, starting, As he begins to address very hard things in the lives of these people, he first shows them his heart for them. He shows them something of his true affection for these people. Now the context is quite obvious, isn't it? We're very much in the early stages of the book, so there's not a whole lot of context to necessarily frame, but Paul has already greeted the church. He's given some gentle nudges, as I referred to it last week, as to one of their problems, a problem of unity, but now he shows them, he shows them how thankful he is for them. And he seeks to encourage them through the hardship, though they are struggling. He seeks to encourage them through the hardship that they are experiencing even as a hurting church. And so this morning, with God's grace, I want to show you the heartfelt thankfulness and warm encouragement of the apostle as he offers his love to them. I want to show you the heartfelt thankfulness 
and warm encouragement of the apostle as he offers his love to them. Well, first, we'll consider these verses in two points. First, the apostle's thankfulness, and then the apostle's encouragement. The apostle's thankfulness, and then the apostle's encouragement. Let's first consider in the verses 4 through 6, the apostle's thankfulness. What is the context here? You might read these verses. You might, if you're a good Bible student, if you know your New Testament, if you know something of the writings of the Apostle Paul, you might note that this is something that he would do often. It was customary. It's a customary address of the Apostle Paul, a way in which he would begin most of his letters with some statement, some area, some pericope, some passage of thanksgiving. It's not unusual to see this in the writings of the great apostle. He does so, as by example, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15, Philippians, a church he had great reason to be thankful for because they weren't much of a problem. And he does it here. A church that is a problem. A significant problem. It would be easy, I think, to read through the thanksgiving of Paul and say, well, I've read that before. He said the same kind of things in Romans, and he said the same kind of things in Philippians, and he said the same kind of thing. If you read it that way, you're missing the whole point. To read it that way is to accuse the apostle of being disingenuous, of not truly, really being thankful. He's just placing words down on a page to, to ingratiate himself to the church at Corinth. But no, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he wrote these things to show something of himself to them that he might address then, therefore, the hard circumstances that they are facing. In the face of it all, the circumstance of the address of giving thanks to these people and seeking to encourage them just seems so counterintuitive. He knows the problems. He knows what they are. He's heard report from Chloe's people. He's received communication from the church. He has heard of the numerous myriad of issues that face this place, all of the matters. But regardless of those matters, Paul extends to them not to to rebuke. He doesn't pick on them. He doesn't even scold them, not yet anyway. Paul extends a heartfelt thanks to God for them. And when we consider the numerous of issues that the troubles they are facing and the troubles they are causing, the apostle still loves them. He still loves them anyway. The focus of the address is, as Paul says it here in these verses, it's very personal. It's personal in the way he expresses it in prayer. I give thanks, he says, to my God. He could have used any pronoun there. He could have chose any word he wanted at that point. But he chose this personal relationship. He's showing something of his own personal union with Christ. Something that he's going to remind the Corinthian church in a few verses from now about theirs. And he shows by virtue of this simple expression, I give thanks to to my God 
of the benefits that the Corinthian church has, just as he has, of access to the God of heaven. I give thanks to my God, he says. The direct object of the verb that's translated thanks here in this verse, it's a word that is often used as one of giving thanks, sometimes and oftentimes even at a meal. The direct object of the verb is my God, the God of heaven. The God who's going to, he's going to show and explain and, and clearly articulate to them the reasons why he's thankful to him in a moment. He is thankful to my God for the church at Corinth. Despite the problems, he is still thankful for them. Notice the frequency of his prayer. Again, it's so easy to read these verses and just go right on by them. I've seen that before. I thank Give thanks to my God always for you. When Chloe's report came to Paul, I give thanks to my God for you. When he hears of the difficulties in the church, I give thanks to God for my God for you. He's not here saying that he all he does all day long, 24-7, is pray day and night for the church at Corinth. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that whenever he has thought of them, whenever he thinks about them, he is thankful to God for them. Humbling nonetheless, this expression is. How often do pastors and elders give thanks to God for the church they serve? I challenge you, brothers, and the last time you've prayed for this church, was that how you saw the people here? Did those words come out of your mouth? I give thanks to my God. I give thanks to you, my Lord, for the people at Providence, even though some of them make me nutty. Or worse, some of them keep me up at night. Some of them worry me. But I give thanks to you. How often. How humbling it is indeed to know that the great apostle was thankful for this messed up lot of people. Brothers, I exhort you, even as a minister of the gospel and a fellow laborer of the gospel with you. Even as I've exhorted myself all week long. On this very point, be thankful for God's people at Providence. It is easy to get stuck in being thankful for whenever everything is going well, when, when the, the, sun, the sun is in the sky and the blue, skies are blue, the roses are blooming, and everything is swimmingly moving from thing to thing. It's easy then. It's much more difficult when you're facing Issues within the body of Christ, discipline cases, problems that are under or over at the surface. It's a different thing altogether to be thankful for the sheep when things are hard, difficult, and not always going well. Be thankful. I'm going to show you why in a minute, even as the Apostle Paul shows us why. But some suggestions. Daily prayer for the sheep entrusted to your care. Pray for their well-being. Pray for the Lord to persevere them. Daily give thanks to the Lord for these people in spite of the frustrations they they may bring you, and they do from time to time. Yes, you do, by the way. 
You be thankful to God for them. Why? For the same reasons Paul gives thanks. The same reasons. They're here. Notice Paul doesn't say, I give thanks to God because they're such wonderful people. They're such model citizens. They're such great examples of the, of the Christian faith. They walk according to God's ways in all things. They are just, they humble me at how godly they are. Nope. In fact, much to the opposite, there are hardly any of that, actually. Paul tells us the reasons. The reasons you, brothers, should be praying for the church at Providence, just as Paul prays for the church at Corinth. Calvin himself says, as these reasons become clear and evident in the passage, Calvin says Paul entertains a favorable opinion about them. Wow. You read that and you just think to yourself, how can that possibly be? Is Paul living in some kind of utopia? Is he nuts? Is he deceived? Is he crazy? He entertains a favorable opinion about them and has good hopes for them for the future. Thus, Paul sets forth reasons for his thankfulness. They are offered in general terms, undoubtedly, but they are offered nonetheless. First, he is thankful because, and here it is, This is the reason. This is the most important one, by the way. Because they belong to the Lord. They're His. He saved them. He rescued them. Oh no, they may not be living that way right now. Oh no, they may not be doing the things that they should be doing. That's all clear. That's all obvious. Paul knows this. But he is thankful for the fact that they are united to Christ. They are blood-bought. They've received that grace that Paul there gives. It's very interesting, the construction of the verb, because of the grace of God that was given you, you church at Corinth. It's a passive verb applied to the Corinthian church. That is, That was an act of God to them. And he's thankful to God for them because of it. He is thankful because the, they belong to to the Lord. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. A few comments just on that expression. He is thankful that God poured out his grace on them. This grace given was passively received by them. The form of the verb makes it very clear that it is God who is doing the acting. The Corinthians are receiving it. It is his work of which you are thanking God for, that they now, because of His work, the Corinthians have received that work, and they have, the Spirit has applied that work to them. They belong to Christ. And brothers, they don't belong to you. And they don't belong to me either. They may be entrusted to your care, but you did not die for them. And neither did I. He is thankful that they are part of God's family. He's thankful that they they are found in Christ. Put a different way, he is thankful that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. They are Christians. They belong to him. They are the Lord's sheep. And Paul is deeply thankful for that. And how easy it is for us to lose sight 
as a minister of the gospel and as an elder in the church, how easy it is for us to lose sight of the fact that these people at Providence are believers. They've made a profession of faith. They've been united to Christ. They belong to Him. And we must be thankful for that. If we cannot be thankful for that, then you can't be thankful for anything else. It must start there. Now we need to be careful here and make it very clear that Paul is not here minimizing the issues of which there are many in the church. He is not by stating his thankfulness to the God of heaven for the grace of God that was poured out on them, minimizing their sin. He's not minimizing the problems. He's not minimizing the immorality that's rampant in Corinth. He's not minimizing the abuse of the Lord's Supper. He's not minimizing any of these issues, and nor should you at Providence. But you still be thankful that they know the Lord. Because only then, therefore, can the issues be really resolved. And so he's thankful that they know Christ. He's thankful, second, that they are marked as receiving God's grace. It wasn't just that he makes this declaration of them being found in Christ. He goes on in what is very, very general language in verse 5, that in every way you were enriched, a very loaded term, enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. He's not saying that he's thankful to the Corinthian church because they're a bunch of know-it-alls. That's not what he says here. He's not saying that they know every language on the planet or that they know everything there is to know about theology and doctrine. That's clearly not the case. He's thankful that they've been marked as those who have indeed received God's grace. There's evidence and proof. It may be waning. It may be fragile. It may be like the bruised reed that Christ will not break or the smoldering wick that Jesus will not extinguish. Paul, in showing his love to them, recognizes the gifts of Christ, the gifts of the Spirit upon them. That they have received this all speech, they have received an utterance of the gospel and knowledge which they now possess as a result of the Spirit's work in them. They heard the gospel of Christ, they responded to it. In fact, when you consider the change between this letter and the one that follows, 2 Corinthians, it is quite evident that they did listen. That there was something there because of their union with Christ and the working of the Spirit that was able to be used by the Spirit to bring them to maturity that they would improve upon the matters of which Paul is going to address. He sees that in them, even if it's so weak and glimmering, barely blinking. He still sees it. He's thankful that they know Christ. He's thankful that they've received the word of Christ. They're thankful that they've been enriched with all knowledge. Look, the Corinthian church, they're not stupid people. They're just living badly. That's stupid people. They're just doing the things the way they should be doing it. They're using their knowledge in a wrong way. But Paul is still thankful. 
These gifts serve to confirm the very work of the Spirit in them. And though they struggle, the Holy Spirit is doing His work, a work that will have eternal consequences. Thus Paul seeks to remind them and encourage them in this pilgrimage. After going to great lengths in just a couple verses, verses 4 into verse 6, he shows a heartfelt thanks for the church to the God of heaven for them. But now he turns a corner, as it were. Not one to rebuke. It's not like he set them up and stuck the candy dish out on, with one hand and then hide him behind his back as a, as a club and he's going to bludgeon him now with some, some, some thing. No, he continues to give to them his love and heart for them. That parenthetical phrase in verse 6 is difficult. It's hard to know where it goes. Does it go with 7 or does it go with 5? Is it an interruption of the flow of thought from 4 and 5 into verse 7? If you take verse 6 right out of the passage, it seems that 4 and 5 read naturally right into verse 7, and 6 isn't really all that necessary, but it's here. It's here to let us know that The present circumstance of this church as the apostle seeks to encourage them is that they are well-supplied people. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, the very hope of the gospel that is recognized in them, weak or faint as it may be, He goes on in verse 7 to even further express that point when he says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. The commentators are divided on this point. I am too, frankly. Is here Paul making a veiled reference to the matter he will address in chapters 12 through 14 on spiritual gifts. My tendency is to deny or reject that understanding. In light of the context, the warmth of these verses that he's seeking to set forth. He's just simply saying to them that you have benefited. You have prospered. You are well supplied in your present circumstance as a church with all that you could find in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not lacking in any gift. You're not lagging behind other churches when it comes to these things. You're just poorly applying much of it in their daily lives. Calvin puts it this way, The Lord has not merely honored them with the light of the gospel, but has eminently endowed them with all those graces that may be of service to the saints for helping them forward in the way of salvation. And precisely, later in the letter, the Apostle deals with the whole question of the body working together, serving one another, doing the things that are needful for a church to grow and prosper and mature. But he says, you are not lacking. You have been given these graces of God. The church is well supplied in their present circumstance, but they're also a church, even in their present circumstance, that is indeed waiting. They are a waiting church. Just like you and I, we are waiting. Here at Providence, we are waiting for one climactic event. 
We are waiting for the coming of Christ, for His appearing. Just as they were waiting, we too are waiting. Waiting is hard for most people. I suspect it was hard for the church at Corinth. I suspect it's hard for us. But we, as they, are waiting for the revealing of Christ, the very return of Christ. We are waiting for His return. And as we wait, we rest in courage that the Spirit has not left us to ourselves. He has gifted us with all the things needful to do the work of the ministry in this place. Just as in Corinth, God knew who He put there by His own providence, called out of the world, as we saw in the first three verses, that they might labor together for the work of the ministry. And yes, it is true that Corinth was misusing their gifts, but they had them nonetheless. The real question for us here at Providence is, Will you use the ones God's given you? Will you use them for the sake of the kingdom here as we wait for the coming of Christ? One of the jobs of elders in the church, ministers of the church, is to encourage members in the ministry, in the work of the ministry, to equip them. That's Ephesians 4, same writer, same author, different church. And he tells them, as they wait, they have been enriched, they've been, they've been gifted, they've been graced with all of the things needful to do the things that Paul is eventually going to address that they correct. And the problems that they are experiencing. But even in this encouragement of letting them know that they are not without, he also seeks to encourage them with a future hope. A future hope. Notice how he puts it so warmly in the passage. So that you, verse 7, are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Come again? Paul, are you like oblivious to the problems? These people are acting like a bunch of yahoos. No, no, they belong to Christ. I'm thankful for them. God is, Christ is not going to abandon them. He's not going to walk away. He's not kicking them out of the family room just because they're acting like a bunch of knuckleheads. Because they're acting immaturely. Because they haven't grown up yet in the faith. Because they're acting like babies. And I mean newborn babes. Like Hebrews' newborn babes. He reminds them, he encourages them of their future hope of the one who will sustain them. We don't place our hope in our gifts. We place our hope in the God who saved us. Paul reminds them of that. And he says, be encouraged by this. It's not dependent on how well you do your worship services. Look, we're going to correct those problems. We are. We're going to fix this issue of the Lord's Supper. We're going to fix that problem. But you know, none of that is dependent upon your eternal state. God saved you. He loves you. You're His. You're in Him. And therefore, He will sustain you to the very end of your days. It's difficult to see in the English, and it's easy to be tempted as you read the verse, as you read verse 8, when you trip up over that word, who will sustain you. You might want to say, well, that's, that's a reference to Jesus. It's not. It's a reference to God. It's there in the very beginning of the thanksgiving because of the grace of God that was given to you. It is God who sustains, the triune God 
in all of the persons of the Godhead, working in and through this church at Corinth, working in and through the church at Providence, the Spirit, the Son, the Father, that will guarantee that we will not be lost ever. Never. Ever a chance. Not only is He the God who sustains, He's the God who vindicates, though troubled on every side by issues, the Corinthians can be encouraged by the fact that they are blameless. Again, you think, how can He say that? Because He's thankful for them being united to Christ. And in Christ, you're blameless. In Christ, you, the law can no longer condemn you. The law does not condemn you, brothers and sisters. In Christ, you are blameless. He took that to himself. It is through the grace of God that they are then able to be described as blameless by the great apostle. Not sinless, blameless. Paul is employing a law metaphor here in relationship to the law. All those who have received the grace of God and the gospel are blameless. Christ has distinguished the curse of the law on your behalf. Now, if that doesn't encourage you, then I don't know what will. If the first point didn't encourage you, nothing will. And now here he says, hey, look, I recognize you, the Corinthian church. I got lots of things to poke at. I got lots of things to deal with. I got lots of things to correct. But I want you to understand something, that you were found in Christ. You belong to him. Be encouraged. He's not going to lose you. And you, before him, you are blameless for all eternity. Why? Because of Jesus. And that's precisely what he says, isn't it? Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Third, all of it is because, as he reminds the Corinthian church and reminds us, it's not due to their faithfulness. Because we can pretty, be pretty sure they, they weren't being very faithful right now, were they? But you see, it's not rooted in them. It's rooted in the very person and character of God Himself. There in verse 9, God is faithful. God is faithful. How does any of this happen? How does God sustain His people? How does He vindicate them as blameless in His sight? He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's how. He who began the work. He will complete the work. It is Him because He is faithful. Oh, sure, we may have issues at Providence. We may have issues now. We may have issues in the future. You may have struggles. You may have hardship. You may have difficulties. You may find yourself in seasons of discouragement. You may feel despairing and despondent. God is faithful. It's not dependent on you. He is the one who will persevere you. He is the one who began that good work, who will perfect it until the day of Christ. It is up to Him. And since He can't fail, there's no chance of it failing. He won't let go of you. He will correct what is wrong. He will guide and help you. He won't abandon you. Why? Because He's faithful. Look, I know you and I, we're often faithless. 
But the God of heaven is never that way. Not to the church at Providence. Not to the church at Corinth, which was probably the worst church in the New Testament. He is not faithless. He is faithful to his people always. And through all of this, he unites then the church at Corinth to Christ and his people. Even as he has united us as the church at Providence to one another. Paul employs a very powerful term here, a word that he talks, that is get much press, much writing. God who is faithful by whom you were called into what? The koinonia. The fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. Notice, our Lord. Paul identifies with them. He's joined to them as they are to Him through virtue of their common Lord, a common bond secured in a blood-bought relationship as we've heard read today. That we belong to the Savior of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by virtue of that, we belong to one another. Therefore, all all that belongs to Christ belongs to you. All of the inheritances that have been given to Christ are given to you. All the benefits of knowing Christ are yours. They're yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. He seeks to encourage this Corinthian church with these glorious truths in spite of the fact that they're a mess. And the Corinthian church is a mess. It's a mess. Not much is certain, but Paul is thankful for them. He's thankful. Pure and simple. He's just thankful that they know the Savior. He's thankful that they know the Lord because of the grace of God that was poured out on them. Yes, he wants better for them. Of course he does. He's a pastor. He's he's an apostle. I want better for you. I want better for you. I want you to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for that often for you. But I'm thankful for you. Why? Because you know Christ. You know the Savior. We are united to each other. We belong to each other. There's a fellowship that is thicker and greater than any other kind of fellowship that any man, woman, child could ever have. And through it, the Paul, the apostle, seeks to show his heart, his thankfulness to them. Yes, he's going to address issues because he loves them. But as he does it, he does it as the sheep of God's pasture. And because they are that, he has confidence that God who is faithful will not abandon the work of his hands. That all that he will say in this letter will not fall on deaf ears. God is faithful. He will perfect what he starts in the lives of his people. The people at Corinth, the people at Providence, wherever his people are found, he will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so you be encouraged in your Christian walk. I'm thankful for you because your names are written in the book of life. On that alone, I have great reason to be thankful and grateful to the God of heaven. I sure want Christ's best for you. 
But as we together labor in fellowship with Christ and one another, we will indeed, we're going to have times of struggle. You put enough sinners in the room, you've heard me say this before, you put enough sinners in the room, you're bound to have trouble. But remember, you still belong to the Lord. He's not going to abandon you in those times of difficulty. He'll persevere you. He'll help you. And as we labor together in that fellowship that's sweeter than any single thing on earth, sweeter than any Super Bowl party, as we labor together, we can be reminded of the heartfelt thanks of the Apostle and the encouragement he gives to the church of Christ. Why? Because we are indeed the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for the encouragement that this gives to us. And we pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged. That you are faithful. You'll never let us go. In spite of problems, issues, concerns, we are the sheep of your pasture. And so help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.